and I I think you'll agree with me on this. Uh, what is the advantage of tuning in here every Tuesday night at 7.30 for a Bible study? What's the purpose? How uh, do you benefit yeah. from it? And, and And I hadn't talked to you about this, but this came to my mind. It's important that when you read the Bible and you don't understand something or during the course of your day, you run into situations that you wonder, what does God think about this? What would Jesus do? Those sort of things. And so it's a place to tune into this number and the rates are really incredible. To tune in and bounce it off some people that might have some answers uh, or know where to look to get some answers. And then, of course, it might be that we all stalemate, but we've discussed it and know maybe the next step to take. So I don't know if I'm being clear, but it's a uh, it's a place to come once a week and perhaps find a solution to some question something on your mind in God's kingdom and with God's authority and so that came to my mind so I wanted to throw that out there and see what you thought well, I, I appreciate that because, yeah, I think the answer to the question you had, what is the purpose, uh, you expressed already when you said Bible study. Um, you know, so, yeah, we may banter around a few other miscellaneous events of the day and so forth, uh, but obviously the intention is to sharpen ourselves and, and to get more uh, aware of our duties, responsibilities, or what the Word shares with us, and uh, and certainly, yeah, the things like you say, things crop up in the day, something comes up, you're thinking about this, thinking about that, and um, yeah, absolutely, I I think that that's you know the purpose for sure is uh, is to study together and to get better at understanding what's there so clearly I, i'm i'm always anxious and and eager to and uh oftentimes spend part of a different part of a day or an evening you know with thoughts about what to you know what to talk about or things that that crop up with things that i'm doing and and uh, decide to bring it up. And it's like the article that I sent out to some of you, and I'm not sure if you got it, Isaac. I guess I don't remember who I... I just I grabbed four or five or six people that expressed, you know, an interest in tuning in for the December 24th message. And uh, so those half a dozen people or whatever, I went ahead and sent out that article because it happened to come up while I was preparing the notes for that particular subject on the 24th. And 
so I thought, you know, it's it's a real. I find these things, you know, periodically that you know you do a, you do a search. You you know you ask your own self a question or you ask a question. Um, uh, I tell you, there's a lot of things I'd like to do, and I, this isn't getting into the subject here tonight either, but. You know, I had a number of things that just kind of came to me in the last several days. And I've thought about this before along the lines of what Pastor Peters one time did, which was the man on the street kind of a thing. And um, one of the things that, you know, some of us could do would would be to, you know, take a tape recorder and go out around a college campus or, you know, wherever, or just down a you know, busy street section where people are shopping and things like that and, and and ask these questions because these questions are good questions. In fact, um, you know, I was thinking about this. Wouldn't it be something to write a little tract about God the evolutionist? And then and <laughs> and of course most people would go, well, that's really strange. I didn't know God was an evolutionist. What are you, what are you saying, Doug? And, well, just think about it. You know, scriptures like where, where he says, look under the rock which you were hewn from. You see, God says that we're from a rock. <laughs> now, that, I think that would just be a unique way to, to reach people on the level of, you know, the idea that you know our God is an evolutionist, you know, uh, he he thinks we're hewn from a rock, you know, <laughs> and uh, so that was one of the things that I I thought of, and thinking of all the scriptures where you could use environmental or evolution type, uh, you know, uh, nomenclature to actually express those things. And then I was thinking of another one. I was thinking, you know, doing the man on the street, you know, whether it's constitutional provisions or are you aware that there's a biblical, you know, or ask them, um, you know, what they think of, you know, socialism or whatever, and then and then say, um, are you aware that in the Bible God allows you to actually have, um, uh, you know, an entire year off <laughs> to rejoice and to revel, and to revel in the blessings that he's provided. And, you know, I, I'm sure you would have people, no, no way. Are you really serious? Yeah. And then, you know, give them scripture and verse. And you, uh-huh. can you imagine going around a college campus with that? And so there's just so many things that if we really put our minds to things, how we could, you know, we could do so many more things about reaching people and showing them the 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 bountiful uh, um, um, lessons in His Word and how we'd be so much better off by them. You know, so just some things I'm yeah. thinking about here this week as well. Yeah, you you made me think of one as well. God loves the sodomite but hates their sin. You no, know, how does that, it just doesn't work, does it? Right. Um, God loves the sinner, not the sin. Yeah, and you you hear that all the time. Yeah. 
Well, how about this one here too? Because this is part of the subject matter I think that we'll get into tonight. How about this one too? What does it matter anyway? Yeah, that's a good one. What does anything matter? If you're just organized amoeba out of pond scum, what does anything matter? (laughs) So how about you, Isaac? What did that spark in yours? Joanna had, uh, Joanna saw something uh, that she shared with me, and it it was something like, uh, if all it takes is faith to be saved, then then Satan would be saved because he believes 100% in in God. That's a very yeah. Even right. Even the even the demons believe and tremble. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And whether you know he uses the word the word Satan, but it's still you know the point. You can get the you can get the point. They uh, if there are demons or devils, they know they know that God is there, and they're battling against Him, and and they're not saved. <laughs> so take, take, take more one, than believing. And, yeah, and that one right there uh, alone, you know. Um, is everybody saved? You know, uh, certainly that's what the church world has taught. And again, that's part of, I think, where things would go here this evening as well, because there's so much. Well, I know we bantered around here a little bit, but I, I'm just going to, did I send you the article, Isaac? Um, I, I haven't seen it. Okay. All right. Well, um, I sent it to Russell. Russell's seen it. I sent it to Rich. I sent it to a couple, three of the others that, it, that uh, as I said, expressed. And it didn't have anything to do with the, the, the message necessarily on the 24th. I mean, it does uh, because we're dealing with the same, the same biblical record and so forth. But um, as I had done something and wound up, you know, asking a question for a search or whatever, all of a sudden something popped up that caught my eye. And I don't even remember what the search was, but it was a, it was a person who asked the question, um, how do you explain the divorce in Jeremiah was, was the question. And, you know, I guess I had time to, to, you know, waste or whatever, so I clicked on it. And it's uh, it's an article, and it was written to uh, Rabbi. And the question was, how do you explain the divorce in Jeremiah? How do you explain that Jewish people are divorced from God by His own word? Question mark. How do we as Jews get back to God under the law, which prohibits us from coming back? Question mark. I'm not saying that we are no longer God's chosen. Dash. I'm saying that for us to be reconciled to God. It cannot happen under the law. Would God have to bring a new covenant in to bring us back to him? Question. And it says you may post the question. So there was one, two, three, four questions. And um, and this is from the perspective of a uh, modern-day uh, Jewish person? 
ostensibly that's what I gathered out of it is that this was a question from a Jewish person but you raise a good point um, suppose it was an Israelite who raised the question to a rabbi and did the rabbi uh, sense something in the mix because of the question you following me mm-hmm. yeah because because he said, you know, the person asked, well, how do you explain the divorce in Jeremiah? How do you explain that Jewish people are divorced from God by his own word? So in other words, how do you explain that? How do we as Jews, and of course, there is the telltale, how do we as Jews get back to God under the law, which prohibits us from coming back? Now, here's a, here's a Jew sitting there saying to his own rabbis, hey, I don't get it. I don't understand it. How do we get back to God right. when the law prohibits us from coming back? And then he says, I'm not saying that we're no longer God's chosen. I'm saying that for us to be reconciled, it can't happen under the law. So here's a person who's trying to read that word that they tell him to read, apparently. And as he reads it, he's, he's coming to a conclusion that is irreconcilable with his faith. So you follow me? Yeah. So are you recording? Did you turn on the recording? I don't remember if I heard it. Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. And um, so, uh, so, you know, would God have to bring a new covenant in order to bring us back to him? So there's, there's the question. So here's the answers. Now, this will take a little bit to go through since, uh, and Russell, if you've already, shoot, Isaac, I guess I could just send it to you real quick. Um, so you could look at well, it. Well, I'm familiar. I've, uh, I've read. I may have read it before. You know, I did a short evening study on something along those lines uh, about six months back. So I, I'm. I think I'm somewhat familiar with with the question and the responses. Okay. Um, so anyhow, uh, answer when you ask about the divorce in Jeremiah, as I say, Russell, feels free to throw in anywhere that you want to stop or anybody else. Um, again, when you ask about the divorce in Jeremiah, in, in quotations, I'm sure that you are referring to the parable in the opening verse of the third chapter of Jeremiah, where the prophet uses a harsh allegory to illustrate God's displeasure with his wayward nation. For readers who are unfamiliar with the subject, I'll briefly explain your series of questions. Using a jarring metaphor, Jeremiah compares Israel's spiritual disloyalty to an adulterous woman who's been put away by the husband whom she betrayed. The prophet then asks a biting question. After she leaves him and marries another man, may he return to her again? Jeremiah 3.1, the unspoken answer is that he cannot. It should really be, can she return to him again? But we'll, we'll leave it at that. The unspoken answer is that she cannot. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 states that the original husband may never come back to his twice-divorced wife. You ask, how can Israel ever return to its rightful place as God's priestly nation? Question mark. Now, you notice how he changes the question. Um, the prophet seems to indicate that she, Israel, has married another, namely the gods of the heathen nations, and she is therefore unable to return to God 
as God's firstborn son, which is a curious thing that he does use, Exodus 4.22, which is correct. How can Israel ever hope to restore herself with the Almighty when the law of Moses seems to indicate that she cannot? How can the nation of Israel look to commandments of the Torah for her salvation when, according to Jeremiah's metaphor, it is those very commandments that prevent her from returning to the God she wants betrothed? The reason you found it difficult to understand Jeremiah 3.1 is that you made two mistakes while reading the parable of Israel as the divorced wife. Your first error is you attempt to interpret a parable in a hyper-literal fashion. I find it puzzling that Christians, who should be acquainted with the use of parables, struggle to understand how Jeremiah is using the parable of the divorced wife. Your second mistake is you read only half the parable. In fact, the answer to your question is embedded in the final clause of the very same verse. Let's first examine the parable more closely. Jeremiah's purpose in using this parable is twofold. First, the prophet wishes to vividly illustrate Israel's spiritual disloyalty to its creator. Second, and most important, unlike the twice-estranged wife whose original husband cannot return to her, The prophet appeals to the Jewish people. Notice how the name is changed. We use Israel one time. We use Jewish people the next time. The prophet appeals to the Jewish people to repent and proclaims that it is their sacred mandate to be restored as God's chosen people. What is impossible with the forsaken woman is the destiny for the children of Israel. Let's look at the entire verse in context. Jeremiah 3.1, quote, They say, if a man divorces his wife, she goes from him and becomes another man, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. End quote. The central feature of the prophet's exhortation that you overlooked appears at the very end of the verse, and he has that highlighted and uh, bold-faced. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Jeremiah makes this plea five times throughout the chapter. The message conveyed by prophet is clear. The mercy and compassion of Almighty is far beyond the scope of a man's comprehension. Whereas the betrayed husband would never take back his adulterous wife, our merciful God will forgive his wayward nation. While the human husband would never forgive his cheating wife, God will forgive his adulterous nation. Now, I think that that's rather brash and bold for the individual rabbi here to actually state that, but I I think it's indicative of a mind frame. Whereas the betrayed husband would never take back his adulterous wife, our merciful God will forgive his wayward nation. While the human husband would never forgive his cheating wife, God will forgive his adulterous nation. In these moving passages, Jeremiah outlines the path to reconciliation with the Almighty, in contrast to the enraged husband who would never allow his unfaithful wife to return. God will embrace his penitent people. Very curious word usage there. What Israel must do to reconcile with her maker? Question mark. That's his question. Then he quotes Jeremiah 3, 4. Just cry out to me. My father, you are the master of my mute, end quote. Yet how can this be? 
Will God's wrath not be kindled forever against his nation? Jeremiah responds with a rhetorical question. Jeremiah 3.5, quote, Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to eternity? End quote. The Almighty's answer follows with a comforting oath promising Israel an eternal destiny and permanent union with the Almighty. Quote, Jeremiah 3.14, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from the city and two from the family, and I will bring you to Zion. End quote. The central message of the third chapter remains the fate of disloyal Israel stands in stark contrast to an unfaithful wife. Whereas the adulterous woman may never return to her former husband, Jeremiah beckons the Jewish people to return to the Almighty and assures them of their eternal destiny with the Almighty. Yet by what means can the Jewish people return to the Almighty? A few chapters later, Jeremiah answers this question he outlines for his disobedient nation how it uh, should be how to restore their relationship with God. It's missing the word too. In Jeremiah's seventh chapter, now I want you to notice that we go from chapter 3, verse 1, and a couple of other verses, 3 and 4, I guess, and we skip all the way to the seventh chapter. In Jeremiah's seventh chapter, the prophet warns his people not to place their hopes on blood sacrifices or to look to the temple of the Lord to save them. Jeremiah proclaims that these institutions cannot deliver them from their brazen sins. Rather, they must turn away from idolatry and return to God by keeping the commandment. Uh, there is no Christian voice in Jeremiah's epoch message on atonement. Jeremiah 7, 3, 7, quote, so said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, improve your ways and your deeds. I, will, I then will allow you to dwell in this place. Do not rely on false words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are they. If you improve your ways and your deeds, if you perform judgment between one man and his fellow man, you do not oppress the stranger, an orphan, a widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and you do not follow other gods for your detriment, I will then allow you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave your forefathers from the days of, you, of your to eternity. I don't know exactly how that reads. I'm reading from the article. And then continues in verses 21 to 23. So says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings upon your sacrifices and eat flesh, for neither did I speak with your forefathers, nor did I command them on the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning a burnt offering or a sacrifice. This thing did I command them, saying, Listen to me, so that I am your God, and you are my people. You walk in the ways that I command you. The seventh end quote, Jeremiah 7, 3 to 7, and verses 21 to 23 of Jeremiah 7. The seventh chapter of Jeremiah stands as a glaring indictment against the church's most cherished creeds. For example, according to Christian doctrine, there is nothing that man can do to merit salvation through his own works or repentance. Now, I find that a very curious statement. For example, according to Christian doctrine, there is nothing man can do to merit salvation through his own works or repentance. And I want you to understand here is that he is telling this Jewish person who says we in the opening question, we Jewish people. So we are to assume that the questioner is, in fact, of a Jewish faith. 
he says, he now is telling his own sheeple, if you will, uh, as he's the rabbi. According to Christian doctrine, there's nothing man can do to merit salvation through his own works or repentance. Now, I would just ask you three, you other Christians here in this fellowship, is there anything that you know of in Christian doctrine that does not uh, um, does how, how, how did I want to put that? Maybe I wasn't supposed to say does not. Let's see. Uh, that that repentance has nowhere in the place of Christian doctrine. Maybe I should ask it that way. Are you guys aware of anything where repentance does is not a a a major part of the Christian doctrine? I'm not. <laughs> I guess that doctrine uh, it's it is a major part of. The doctrine; it may not be a major part of modern-day Christianity. Does that makes yeah. Sense? I would agree with so. I, I would agree with that. Def- right. I would agree with that. Then say so. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All we have to do is look and, at and, Well, yeah, but the point is, is that he's he's basically using this to try to teach his sheep that the Christian doctrine is an error. And so if you're going to express the error, then the error is modern Christians don't seem to, and that would be true. And so this is why I thought the article is good, because it helps us to recognize false doctrine within our own Christian doctrine, if you follow me. So we can not only, we can not only look at the false doctrine that is being peddled in the one sense, but we can also see how they view us in terms of yep. our, quote, false doctrine. And they make no bones about pointing out our false doctrine, just as he's doing here. So I agree with you, Isaac, is that, yes, if, if the idea is, is that the Christian doctrine that we have in modern Christianity today does not actually uh, you know, convey to the parishioners the responsibility and the duty of repentance, then that clearly is you know, a false doctrine. Um, Okay, then he goes on, so I'll start that paragraph again. For example, according to Christian doctrine, there is nothing man can do to merit salvation through his own works or repentance. Well, that's absolutely correct. In fact, it isn't our doctrine. It's the biblical doctrine. God has told us repeatedly from the very beginning, if you understand anything about Abraham as well, is that there was nothing that was of the works. He did it of his own free will, God making his decisions of whom he's going to have a covenant with or who he's going to favor or who he's going to work a plan through or whatever his desires are. Going on, he says, atonement, Christendom argues, can only be achieved through the shedding of innocent blood. Throughout the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, however, the prophet rebukes this aberrant teaching. God desires repentance alone for man's grievous sins, not blood sacrifices, Jeremiah loudly declares. Okay, so let's just ask ourselves this question. So am I to believe and am I to understand and am I to assume that the rabbi believes that um, repentance is the only 
acceptable means, uh, and then I guess works um, for uh, for the you know return to a relationship with God. Well, if that's the case in his mind, then we could say, well, has not Jewry repented? And so therefore, if he can't get the rest of the brethren to repent, then he's in the same shape that Christendom is in. There's not a national wholesale repentance in order to have God to return to them. So in one sense, once again, he's exposing the greater problem with both viewpoints, and that is repentance obviously is not occurring. You following me? Finally, as we explore Jeremiah's message, pay particular attention to what appears nowhere in the prophet's message. The cornerstone teachings of the church are nowhere to be found in the book of Jeremiah. So he's telling his people the cornerstone teachings of Christianity are nowhere to be found in the book of Jeremiah. But he does not say that they're nowhere to be found anywhere else in the Bible. As a result, this chapter presents a monumental theological problem for Christians. Why isn't there one word throughout the prophet's admonishment about believing in Jesus for salvation? So right here, he's conveying that, gee, there's nothing in the book and the prophet's message about believing in Christ. And it's like, are you kidding me? Um, we can go to the prophet Isaiah, we can go to the prophet Amos, we can go to the prophet Zechariah, we can go to um, uh, Jeremiah himself, um, and we can point out scripture and verse, and that's what has to be done if one is to make ourselves better understand our position or our doctrine, if you will, as a Christian. and. Um, so then he basically goes on, and you know, time is going to get away from me if I, if I don't shorten it up. But basically, he wants to know why didn't Jeremiah instead prophesy that the day would come when the Jewish people would be restored to their land as a result of their own heartfelt repentance, which is what Jeremiah 3, 14 to 18 says. Well, he conveniently skips over Jeremiah 3, 8. And Jeremiah, well, we might as well start at Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And said, and I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me, but she returned not. But she returned not. So if you're going to just skip from 3, 1 through 4, and go on to somewhere else that suits the fancy without taking the entire scripture in context, in fact, the person who wrote the question understood that they were divorced. So they seemed to understand that 
it says, and I'm continuing now in 7, and I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So what do we learn here? Judah thought, Israel did it, God said, return to me, but, verse 8, and I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. This is key. This is critical. Because what does the Jew claim that the Jew is? I know that modern Christianity thinks that the Jew claims that they are of Judah, even though Judah, even though Jewish people and Jewish rabbis have gone clearly on the record and said that they are not Judah, and they, in fact, don't have a drop of Judah's blood in them. They are, however, of a different line. Some of them may have been true. Some of them may have been true Judahites. Go ahead. It's important to remember that they used that 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 mistaken identity when they need it to their advantage. If it's going to help them, they will play that card. That we're exactly we're the chosen people, we're the Israelites, we're Hebrews, we're all that. If they need to persuade an idiotic population. They'll play it. But I think what we saw in that encyclopedia, that Jewish encyclopedia, I think that was to their people. But just so you understand, guys, we're not who those nutcakes think we are. You know what I mean? They're they're clearing it up for their people. Yeah, isn't that that is interesting, and that's a good way of putting it. They're they're attempting to clear it up for their people that uh, hey, we are not those people, but um, we don't tell it to too many people. Uh, we kind of keep it close to the vest, kind of a thing. But that's a very critical part here. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So Israel got a decree of divorcement, a written divorcement from God. And that, of course, is all recorded in the prophet Hosea as well. So understanding that now, you know that Israel, who was divorced, and God still spoke kindly to her, God is now speaking kindly to Judah, reminding Judah, look, I pleaded with Israel the same way that I'm pleading with you. And yet, it says, it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me with her whole heart, but sainedly, said the Lord, And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself 
more than treacherous Judah. Now, I want you to know, looking at that word justified is uh, 6663. It's Fadak. It is to justify, as in righteous, just, and justice. To be just, to be righteous, to have a just cause, to be in the right. So my point in trying to point out that word justified is God is already saying that Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. So in other words, Judah has not even closely resembled anything to be justified by. Are you following me? Yeah. And so that's no small matter. And so if this rabbi is claiming to be of Judah, then he would need to understand that he, along the line, uh, the lineage of Judah, if he is, and he is a, a remnant, you know, 2,000 years removed now, then he would understand that this is applicable. And the application to this is, what do I do? Or have I missed something? Or did something happen? So anyhow, um, I won't take any more time on that particular one. But uh, uh, continuing on the article, um, he does go to Jeremiah 31, 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, under this word covenant, I have looked it up. I am very confident the article that I'm reading, he gives the Hebrew word and the Hebrew letters which make the word. And behind covenant, then, he has the Hebrew writing and he has the word bris, B-R-I-S. I don't even know. This may not be a significant thing or anything else, but to me, it bothers me. It bothers me because he's claiming that the Hebrew word there is bris, B-R-I-S. I don't know what it is to those guys, but I know what it is in um, uh, uh, let's see, 31, 34. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, okay, let's see. Is this 31... How, how did I do that? Oh, I must have went way forward or something. I don't know what happened, but I I think my program changed on me. Uh, so anyhow, uh, let me pull it back up. 3134, if somebody's got it, Jeremiah 3134, give me uh, strongs on, while well, I'm trying to get it myself, um, on covenant. And as I say, it's not that big of a deal, but um, uh, uh, I just want to clarify once again that it's not the way that I'm getting it. Jeremiah 31, 34, all right. Can I read something? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go backwards. 
from the word wedding is a state of being wed, which is pledged, okay? So marriage is the act of entering into wedlock, a state or condition a matrimony, a union for life. Okay. Now I'm going to go back to what got me to that, and I'm going to read divorce. The legal dissolution of the bond of the marriage. From the Latin word divorturium means separation, dissolution. So, it's the complete breakdown of the promise, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important that, like you said, we all understand the terms. So when the rabbi is talking about divorce, everybody needs to understand what it is and and have that as a for contextual material, right? And he's going to get—he's going to get to uh, to that a little bit in the article, which you probably recall, because it drops into three fourteen, where he talks about eternal backsliding children. Says, "Lord, I'm married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and bring you to Zion, and so forth." And so, so he's acknowledging that. But here, this covenant, like I said, he's got bris, and it's not. I've looked at the Hebrew, and it, it looks exactly the same lettering that he's showing in the article, and it says berit, which that's always what I've understood it to be. I'm sorry I couldn't remember it off the top of my head, but uh, it's, it's, you know, benai bris is, you know, the covenant sons of Ai, ben Aya, ben meaning sons and Ai meaning Ai. So that is what Benai Brith is. So right here in the same sense, it's zero, it's uh, 1262 and it says covenant, league, confederacy, just like we had talked about a few weeks ago on the confederacy that God, the league, the covenant God created with Israel and with Judah. So anyhow, um, you know, minor points, but as I say, I just don't understand why he chose to use it. And so then he, he does the 31 to 34, Jeremiah 31 to 34. Uh, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. I will write it and will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. All right, I'll go on. Then he says missionaries maintain that Jeremiah's new covenant is an unveiled reference to the New Testament, which speaks of salvation by believing in the atoning death of Jesus. Quote, Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. End quote. What of the Sinaitic covenant found on the keeping of the Torah's commandments? He asks, Commenting on Jeremiah 31, the author of the book of Hebrews declares that the Torah's life-giving commandments are obsolete and concludes, quote, 
in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete now what has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away right here ready to vanish away if this new covenant being made is going to be uh, making the old vanish away then how can he still be under some belief that it's in the future if it's going to be going old and vanishing away that's a very clear implication that it's going to happen relatively soon if not already it is therefore not difficult to understand how the Calvinist author Arthur W. Pink in an exposition of Hebrews argues. Now, I didn't pull up the, the uh, source site for this, but he's basically taken another jab at, at Calvin uh, through the author uh, Arthur W. Pink, and this is what Pink says, quote, it is exceedingly difficult, if not quite impossible, for us to form any adequate conception of the serious obstacles presented to the mind of a pious Jew when anyone sought to persuade him that Judaism has been set aside by God and that he must turn his own back upon it, end quote. Well, I don't know the context of that quote, but, um, you know, he's referring to him as a Calvinist author. Um, I don't know who Arthur W. Pink was, and he, he's apparently providing an exposition on Hebrews. Um, so to me, this context, uh, the context for this quote doesn't sound complete, but other than in the sense that if you're trying to tell a Jew that, hey, you know, your Judaism or whatever, uh, that's not going to work because... Their Judaism is entirely different in their mind. In their mind, their Judaism, their religion is not even, you know, they claim it's of the Torah, but it's not. It's based on the traditions of the rabbis and so forth. They may use that Torah as their prop, but it's predominantly on the traditions of men uh, through their rabbinical writings. While some people find Pink's conclusions reprehensible, this author is a committed Reformed Christian. Now, I want to state that this author is a committed Reformed Christian. So now you're getting the sense that this is a rabbi who's a committed Reformed Christian, and he is really trying to educate this, this poor you know, Jewish person who's got this inordinate you know, problem in understanding Jeremiah. In order to answer your question regarding Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant, understand first how the New Testament has misapplied and altered Jeremiah 31:34, and then grasp the prophet's message in these four well-known verses. So here we have to discredit the Christian's uh, grasp and concept of it in order to apparently support his own. As mentioned, missionaries argue Jeremiah 31:34 is a prophecy of an event that occurred nearly 2,000 years ago with Jesus' death on the cross. They insist that this new covenant replaced the old, obsolete Mosaic covenant forged with the entire nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Christian rendering of Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant, however, is an extraordinary reconstruction of the prophet's own words. It is not a prophecy, he says, that occurred 2,000 years ago or any time in the past. Rather, it's a prophecy that will be fulfilled in the future Messianic age. The fact that Jeremiah 31:34 begins with the prophet addressing 
both the house of Israel and the house of Judah clearly indicates that Jeremiah is speaking to the Jewish people. What? <laughs> the fact that it begins with the prophet addressing both house of Israel and house of Judah clearly indicates that Jeremiah is speaking to the Jewish people. What do you mean clearly indicates that? He's clearly indicating he's speaking to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In fact, he's telling the house of Judah, do you not know what I said to the house of Israel? And I'm saying it to you now too. <clears throat> Following the reunification of restoration of the ten lost tribes. No restoration occurred at the time when Christians claimed the new covenant was fulfilled in Jesus' death. Quite the contrary, during the Christian century, the house of Israel did not exist. Assyria exiled the kingdom of Israel more than seven centuries early. Moreover, during the first century, the Jewish people were spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Thus, the vast bulk of house of Judah did not reside in the promised land during Jesus' time. In short, the era of the new covenant has not yet arrived. Rather, Jeremiah's prophecy addresses a future messianic age when the entire Jewish people, both Judah and Israel, will be restored. Notice how he equates all Jewish people with all Israelites. And that simply can't be the case. We went over that in the series Israel, Judah, and Jew. You do not name ancestors by the descendants. It is not physically possible. Nobody prior to the house of Judah even being formed could even be called a Jew because that only could have returned to the line of Judah and we maybe we haven't spent enough time on that in the translation of the word Iudeus and all the rest of it in order to get people to understand that. Now, I think we're all pretty clear on this, but again, as I say, I felt that there were some things here that we could, you know, um, learn about some doctrine that he's critical of, which I think we all kind of get that uh, doctrine as well uh, that he's critical of, but we can also learn how to better articulate an understanding of this to others um, and just using the article to do that. So. It says, he goes on to say, in short, the era of the new covenant has not yet arrived. Rather, Jeremiah's prophecy addresses a future messianic age when the entire Jewish people, both Judah and Israel, will be restored, reunited in the land of Israel, and he cites Ezekiel 37, 15 to 22. Now, I can tell you of a certainty. I can send you right now to Ezekiel chapters uh, 27, 20 to 24, and Ezekiel 25, uh, or rather uh, with Ezekiel 21, 25, and 27. So 17, Ezekiel 17, 20 to 24, and Ezekiel 21, 25 to 27. And he's saying that this in Ezekiel hasn't even happened, hasn't even occurred, and yet it did occur, and God is very clear about it occurring. Um, then he goes from the reference to Ezekiel in just passing, he skips basically over that. On the contrary, there has been no time in history when Jewish people were more fractured and dispersed than the first century CE when the author of the book of Hebrews claims that Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant was fulfilled. Moreover, a cursory reading of verse, no doubt they were scattered. Everybody was scattered. In fact, 70 years after, 
your Jewish people, if you could claim an ounce of Jewish uh, Judahite blood, were scattered. Those that understood the message got out of Jerusalem, and those that did not got destroyed. Um, so, um, no more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And then he cites Jeremiah 31, 34 again. He says the above verse clearly speaks of an age that will be realized during an epoch of the universal knowledge of God. Now, this is just another one of these words that they love to use. The universal knowledge of God, the universal humanity of God, the universal, uh, uh, um, I forget what they use, with, uh, of God with man. Uh, it will occur when no one will have to teach his neighbor about God, for they shall know me. But God is talking about Israel and Judah, and he's talking about those two houses knowing who he is, a time in which they will absolutely know that this God is the God of creation. This is the God of Jacob, Israel, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, Israel. And this is the God to whom they want to stay in fellowship with. And there's no other people. No other people like Israel, the whole house of Israel, who recognizes this God of creation that is recognized by the Christians as the only true God. Now, others may have come to it, but this people, Israel, are a people who obviously not only fit what Hebrews said, in terms of their hearts being changed to know who God was and to know that they are connected to him. The church is spending many hundreds of millions of dollars annually in order to convert masses worldwide to Christianity. There are roughly one billion Muslims and Hindus in the world today who, according to Christian teachings, do not know the Lord. And they are an untold number of atheists throughout the globe who certainly do not know any Lord. So the implication here is clear. This can't be a fulfilled prophecy because these people don't know the Lord. But you have to go all the way back to Genesis to understand who, when you take this Bible, if there's something that I could give everybody here tonight that they would be able to share with others, this Bible becomes restrictive in nature rather than expansive in nature. Now, let me try to explain that. From the opening pages in Genesis with Adam and so forth, and Adam's line, go from Adam's line to Noah's line, from Noah's line on up through the rest of the Bible, you will find you will find an inextricable link to all of those people constantly being called God's people, constantly being referred to as his his husband, his only begotten son. I mean, you name it. He still is dealing with those people clear up through the New Testament, which we did in the series Israel, Judah, and Jew. Clear up through the New Testament, we confirmed that he was still dealing with the same people. Now, the expansive part in nature 
is that those who wish to receive the undeniable truth of the God of creation, who is Israel's God, are welcome to become a part of that understanding and acknowledgement. And there are certain things then that they also are required to do as the Christian is required to do, the Son of Christ, Christ's Son. So I know that, you know, go ahead. You made me think of something. Uh, the the hedonist says, if it feels good, it is good, therefore do it. And this Bible that you were just talking about, restrictive, the philosophy there is, if it pleases him, do it. If he, if it's, it's completely opposite of hedonism. Because you have you have some you have some things there that you are not to do, no matter what it feels like. Don't do it. See what I'm saying? Oh yeah, no, it's a good point. Yeah, it's restrictive in that sense as well. Absolutely. So then from here, he goes on to Jeremiah 31, 35 to 36, and, and, and this is the scripture that so clearly says, you know, if the moon, the stars, if everything, if they, all that quits, then I would no longer be Israel's God. But if all that still exists, I'm going to be Israel's God. So then he says, Jeremiah's prophecy of an eternal Jewish people presents the church with a serious theological problem because the New Testament went to great lengths to undermine the Jewish sacred text. In fact, the author of Hebrews deliberately changed. Now, uh, we're going to get to that. Jeremiah's prophecy of an eternal Jewish people presents the church with a serious theological problem. No, it does not. There is no serious theological problem at all because the covenant has been renewed. It's why you need to accept the new scriptures because it says there is a day when it was to come that there will be a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This Jewish people thing just don't fly. And so my point in this is that these guys are not overly bright. I know a lot of people seem to think that the Jews are just so bright. They're not. They're just crafty. They're crafty and cunning. And they're deceitful. And they use a multiplicity of deceitfulness for them to claim. So now he's going to actually complain and criticize two scriptures, Jeremiah 31, 32, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, Jeremiah 31, 32, and the book of Hebrews, he says, does not merely misquote Jeremiah, but changes entirely the verse to fit its anti-Judaic agenda changing the text to read, quote, because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord, Hebrews 8, 9. Well, I cannot tell you how many times in Scripture, but I know that there's probably at least a couple of dozen that could be considered very egregious scriptural errors in terms of a prophet or, excuse me, a quote in the Old Testament 
compared to a, a usage by an apostle in the New Testament and having it not read the same. Two things are going on with that. And he is totally disingenuous with this. He, he says it's just a total, Hebrews 8, 9, quoting Jeremiah, uh, the Christian author changed, the Christian author changed a most crucial word in the last clause of the passage. Now, isn't that just like them? They forever change the word of God. They change it through their traditions of men. And anybody that's spent any time reading any of their writings knows how they twist and contort the scriptures. And, you know, to, to then say that the, you know, Christian author changed a most crucial word. Well, now I'm going to tell you about those two words. The two words is husband in Jeremiah 31, 32, and it's disregarded them in Hebrews 8, 9. Okay? Now, the thing about that word is uh, that that word, if you were to look at the context of the two verses, you might think, okay, it's a big error. It's a big error. Uh, first of all, you have what was translated in the Masoretic text versus what was translated in the Septuagint, check, uh, Septuagint text. So in essence, you had two separate translations. Now remember, the Septuagint Greek is the one that was predominantly most widely used at the time of Christ. It was a translation that was just preceding uh, the era and time of Christ, as I recall, uh, how that came into existence. The Masoretic then, um, and I may have that wrong, the Masoretic, I know the rabbis lean on it very heavily, um, and of course this husband would be from the Masoretic, I believe, and the disregard word used is from the Septuagint. But in neither in either case, if you were to read them both in the context Certainly, although he says, I was a husband to them, and the Hebrews 8, 9 says, because they did not continue in my covenant, well, the Jeremiah 31, 32 says, my covenant which they broke, obviously not continuing in the covenant is breaking the covenant, so those two renditions mesh the disregard in the husband is the is the quintessential difference, I guess. And but in the context of them both, there's no clear indication of any kind of um, uh, uh, you know uh, failed attempt by by Christians to to change a word. Um, I was looking well, for something that I pulled up. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Russell. I was just looking for something that I pulled up. Stimulated something in my mind here, and that is that <clears throat> this love, this love, and this promise was very conditional, and the condition was that you follow 
just like any contract, follow the, the, the letters of the contract. And so he didn't necessarily leave them. God didn't break the contract. Uh, they opted out of the contract, didn't they? Right. So I think it's very important that we understand he was rock steady. They were the ones that screwed things up. I mean, he didn't break. All right, his I found. Words. Right, I found what I was looking for in the Masoretic. Uh, the way the Hebrew is written, it kind of looks like an upside-down Y with a tail on it. And um, in the Masoretic, that letter um, is flat on the bottom like, a, um, like an upside-down L with a line on the top, essentially like a J. And in the uh, Septuagint, that letter appears like an upside-down Y. That's the, two, the difference in the two Hebrew letters. And so um, that's, the, that's you know, the, real, the real issue. So this person, being a rabbi, has got to know that it's a translation issue between both the Masoretic and the Septuagint. It doesn't have anything to do with a Christian author. You see my point? You see how the deception is there to cast the dispersion instead of clearly doing what I'm just doing right now and expressing the reason that there's the difference was because of the, the way the Hebrew looked to the person who translated the word. And it's really actually more of a testament to us at how much God's word was preserved, even though it was translated in both the Masoretic and the Septuagint, to how, how grateful we are that we have the two to compare to and we can see the error. And then nobody changes essentially the Masoretic or the Septuagint, not because they don't want to or whatever, but that they simply leave it there so that it's able to be known and seen why. You see, because there'd be so much more that would have to be changed, and then we'd have somebody who would say, well, I don't even, you know, well, it would be lost to us, you see. It would be lost because we would not even know how it occurred, and that's why it's been left. And it doesn't affect the meaning at all because <clears throat> the, the case is clear of what's being conveyed there. I'm not going to elaborate on it. I think anybody with a brain can figure that out, but um, if somebody wants more elaboration, they can certainly contact us and we'll get into some more on it. But um, So anyhow, um, as I say, the context of that entire flow of that statement there is the same. God has, has conveyed that they didn't continue in the covenant. They broke it. We already know that he's a husband. And he disregarded them, period. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's what's being conveyed in both Jeremiah 31 32 and what's being conveyed in Hebrews 8 9. And so it was interesting to me that when I copied that article to send it to you, it was that discrepancy that pops up. You know how sometimes you'll send a link to somebody and it won't just have the link address, it'll actually have a little pop-up too. <laughs> I thought it was so hilarious when I actually clicked on it to copy it and put it in the email. I saw right away what pulled up was this 
he's got the two verses side by side to show how, how we Christians and the Christian author have changed this word, which has nothing whatsoever to be changed in the context of it and everything. So anyhow, um, one of the things I did want to get into was those scriptures in, in uh, Ezekiel. But in order to tell you how I arrived at those scriptures in Ezekiel several years ago, um, which tell a a really big story about what happened, Ezekiel is is a really, um, um, uh, what do I want to call it, a metaphoric or a, um, um, well, metaphoric, allegorical type uh, uh, the way it's written in Ezekiel, and it, it's just really interesting. Um, so let's go to Ezekiel 17, 20 to 24 here, and let's get into that quick, and then we'll try to wrap it up into something that might make some kind of a conclusion here. Uh, there's more of the article, but I can't get into more of that uh, because we're already approaching such a late hour here. Uh, Ezekiel 17 and verses 20 to 24. Now, to understand what's going on here, this is the parable of the eagles in in Ezekiel 17. And see, um, God was sending um, uh, I'm going to say, I just lost my train of thought real quick. Um, oh yeah that's what I was going to say Jehoiakim is the last king of Judah alright so Babylon, uh, Judah's going to go into the Babylonian captivity Israel's already gone into the Assyrian captivity um, so giving you some context there here we are in uh, in chapter 17, verse 15, it says that Zedekiah, he rebelled against him in sending his ambassador to Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. And God says, shall he prosper? All right, dropping down to the scriptures at hand, uh, we're looking at verses 20 to 24. This is God's punishment. I'm going to begin at 19 for context. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely, my oath that he has despised, my covenant that he has broken, even, oh, I can't even do this. I've got to take you back to um, Ezekiel, because you, you have to know this as well. Um, let's see, Ezekiel... Oh, you know what it is. <laughs> Sorry. It's not Ezekiel. It's in Jeremiah. All right. So let me just tell you. In the book of Jeremiah, we have the prophecy where Jeremiah is to go. Um, and Jeremiah chapter 1, I believe it is. Uh, we were in Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, and 
God tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter, to the potter's uh, house, and watch the potter. And so he forms a vessel, and then he destroys it. And God says, can I not destroy that which I have created? Just like that. And then he goes on to prophesy that he's going to break Judah just like a pot that cannot be put back together again. So Israel's been divorced, but Judah's got a different punishment coming. All right, so here we are again, once again, in Ezekiel um, 17, verses 20 and 24, beginning with 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, assuredly as I live, I know that he is despised in my covenant that he has broken. Even it will I recompense upon his own head. I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he has trespassed against me. And all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all the winds, and ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch, I will take of the highest branch, of the high cedar, and I will set it and crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. I will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it and shall bring forth boughs and, I, and, and bear fruit and be goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell a fowl of every wing in the shadow of the branch as thereof shall they dwell. This is so important because he's taking in Jeremiah, you're going to see in, 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 in the book of Jeremiah, in that prophecy, God tells, actually, um, go back to 17. I should have started with this. 17, um, son of man put forth a riddle. This is 17.2. Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel and say thus to the house, to the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long wings, full of feathers, which had divers colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. All right, I'm going to stop there. What is he saying? He's saying a great eagle with great wings, long winged, full of feathers, which had divers colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, think about this. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Was not Nebuchadnezzar turned into a great beast with wings and feathers? Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. So here he is in, 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 a, in a visual way. He's saying this great eagle with great wings, long wings, full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto the Lebanon. Where was Lebanon? Jerusalem. Took the highest branch of the cedar. Okay? Judah was the cedar of God. So if he took the highest branch, what did he take? He took the king of, Bab or king of Judah, that, uh, which was Zedekiah. He cropped off the top of his young twigs, and he carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it. All right, I'm going to skip because of the sake of time. But you read this 17, and then over to 22 where we were. Thus says the Lord God, I, I, 
So here, this winged eagle is going to do something in 17 in the first five verses, but then God says, I, the Lord God, I will take of the highest. By the way, in the rest of this in 17, he also takes two branches. Well, the two branches are the two sons of Zedekiah. They would be in succession to the throne. But God allows Nebuchadnezzar to take them, and he does. He kills them. And you recall Zedekiah went into the captivity and got his eyes put out. But Zedekiah had a daughter. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and we'll set it, and we'll crop off from the top of these young twigs a tender one, and we'll plant it on a high mountain and imminent. Now, what I wanted to share with you, there was an author in 1880 who had written a tract or a booklet called England, the Remnant of Judah, and Israel of Ephraim. And his name is Glover. And I got this off of USA Archives, uh, but it's, it's the University of Michigan. Um, and... I don't know if you guys know about this archive site, but basically it's an archive site, and this is where Matthew has put a lot of the Israelite messages as well from other preachers um, on this archive site. It's uh, us.archive.org. And anyhow, I found this article there uh, from the 1880 by this Glover where he speaks specifically about all of this, talks about the... The uh, so this T. Tepe, which you guys may have got that book in your our libraries, uh, called The Tender Twig, and that was another place where I obviously read about this, but I also found original source material online, and it just helps to pull it all together. So, my point in all of this is that this Jewish rabbi does not know this either because he does <clears throat> because he is not Judah and therefore does not and he is not looking <laughs> or he knows this and he's not going to convey it to the rank and file. That's the only two only two things that it could be. Because if I, a high school, you know, graduate, can can glean this knowledge from available sources and so forth. And then, not only that, in the last four days, I came up with another site where there is a, uh, a Jewish rabbi writing. And let me tell you the titles of the books. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Israelite Identity of Celtic Races. Joseph, The Israelite Destiny of America. The Tribes, The Israelite Origins of Western People. Hebrew Warriors, um, Edom and Germany. uh, let's see, the uh, chosen people. The title is chosen people, and here's the here's the sub: the descendants of Joseph and the ten tribes among English-speaking nations and the Jews of Judah. 
Now, I found, and, th- and that's not all of them, um, Ephraim, the Gentile children of Israel, uh, Scandinavian secrets, the Hebrew code of the runes. Um, um, uh, that's basically it. Aren't those some unique, I mean, aren't those some very revealing titles? Yes. And so my point... All books that I'd like to read. (laughs) Exactly. I sent sent Brother James an email and I said, Brother James, I think there's a lot to learn here, but I said I'm not going to send him 25 bucks for every book for probably original source material that they already stole from us in the first place. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, and so uh, the essence of my email to him also is I said, you know, I think that the battle is lost. They have lost the battle that we have come to a greater understanding and we have been articulating and expressing it in as many ways as we can. And there's a lot of pastors that have done a lot of great work. And I wish that I could have been there to help them earlier, but I'm here now. And um, the idea I, I said to him is, I, I, I think that they've, they finally have realized they've lost the battle. So now the best thing they can do is to quickly convey the truth and amalgamate them, amalgamate us with them. And we will once again be desensitized to who they really are. And that's another thing, again, like I say, that I think we really got to go back to the book of Genesis and we've got to go back to that line and follow that line of, um, you know, from Noah and the Japheth line and so forth and, uh, you know, and the Shem, the, the Shem line, so that we can better articulate that. Because these people don't claim in their writings, they don't claim to be Shemites, even though they cry anti-Semitism, anti-Shemite, and they don't have any Shemite blood in them whatsoever. They're Japhethites. <laughs> and if anything, you know, if anything. And that isn't the line of, that's what I say. The Bible is kind of restrictive is that what appears to be, you know, a biblical record about all of creation, it actually then hones right in on one particular individual and from then a particular line of descendants and even from then a more particular line of descendants. You see what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I don't know if I did any justice because it's hard to go through something that large with so little time, and there's more that we can do. So I mean, we can definitely get into this whole uh, part of, I know that most of us here already understand the divorce of Israel in Jeremiah 3.8 and understand the Israelite identity, I believe now and so forth, but if there's more that anybody thinks that we need to do or should get into, you know, I'm always for it because it just helps me and it hopefully it helps you guys. So so what do you think about 
the article in general, either of you, and the way it was written. And what was your sense of it, Russell? My sense was it's a typical Jewish article. Yeah. It, it was manipulation of facts. However, there was a lot revealed. Um, you see, they don't they don't promote themselves or their religion uh, like evangelical Christianity. They're sort of withdrawn, and you have to be born into their religion, and they really don't want outsiders. So, since they kind of hide the whole Talmud stuff, they kind of hide. I mean, they they don't show all their cards. As I said earlier, they they only use the 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 Israel thing when they need it to manipulate uneducated or just stupid Christians that have been lied to for generations through the pulpit. So, so what I'm trying to say here is it's worth a discussion of the article, but I wasn't really surprised at, at most of it. I, I guess I was more surprised when he reveals some things about them sort of accidentally. I mean, if you're uh, cued yeah. into it, you know? Yeah. If, if you're kind of sitting there scrutinizing the article, you see some things and you go, uh-huh. You know? Well, let me, let me close with this, uh, in, in essence, on the article. So he he then, toward the end, poses some questions. He says, let's ask ourselves the following question. Do leaders of the church who insist that the Messiah has already come demand that its parishioners observe the commandments of God? That's a good question. Do members of the Messianic congregations guard the mitzvah, the Shabbat, because Ruth is clearly outlined in the Jewish scriptures. Well, no, we don't. But whatever you're trying to convey, I don't know. For example, do Jews who convert to Christianity refrain from kindling a fire or carrying any object on the Sabbath day? See, right here, back to the holier than thou. You see, they're just the same way that they were in the days of Judah. He said, God said that they justified themselves more than Israel did. You see, they, no, I don't want to use the word justified because that's incorrect. He's saying that, that, that they went and played the harlot in a worse fashion. So here they are playing their holier than thou, just as the Pharisees of old did, which they are of, obviously, of the Pharisees of old. And they, you know, did did Christian did converts to Christianity refrain from kindling the fire or carrying any object on the Sabbath? The Bible explicitly states that those practices are forbidden. Exodus 35:3, Jeremiah 17:19:20. Scriptural Sabbath observance is abandoned entirely in Messianic congregations. So, you know, that's a little bit bragging, you know, bold right there. Do we entirely? You know, do Judeo-Christian church world, does modern Christian church world totally abandon the scriptural Sabbath? No, I don't think so. 
But that's, of course, the way he's putting it. Strangely, the Messianic movement only observes rabbinic rituals and traditions, not the commandments clearly outlined in the Torah. Yet, why do they practice what is forbidden if they insist the Messiah has already come? Who in reality, who in reality, diligently and joyfully adheres to these life-giving precepts? The faithful remnant of the Jewish people, the nation that utterly rejects the core teachings of Christianity. You see, and those are good questions that he that he asked because I I think most of us would agree one of our problems as a Christian people is we have not taken God, Christ's command to us that says if you love me keep my commandments, but instead they have also rejected and taken the traditions of men to cast those those out. So, you know, uh, and then again, at the bottom of the article, it says that, you know, full disclosure, this particular Messianic uh, Jew has actually reconverted to Judaism. So he wasn't a Christian for long, <laughs> I guess. And he decided those rascally Christians aren't, aren't so good to be with, so I'm going to go back to my Judaism. But I I basically figured well once a Jew always a Jew but um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, anyhow uh, just uh, my point of bringing up the Ezekiel part if I didn't make it clear my point was to show that God did something He took Judah and He planted it. And this guy cannot claim to be of Judah, or he would know what that Ezekiel is talking about, and he would know that Tia was planted. Tia, Tefi, Tefi, and Tia are the same. It's just two different Irish bards that that translated the name or whatever. So Tia, T-E-A, or Tea, and then uh, Tefi. Those are just two different translations of the same name, so they're often referred as Tia Tepe because they're one and the same, and when somebody mentions it, they want to make sure that no matter which way they're referring to it, that somebody knows what they're talking about. So that's a very good history about how Judah was taken to Ireland and how all the subsequent kings have been coronated uh, upon Jacob's stone and, you know, those are all things that we all have to go get into and stuff, too. The many, many authors that have written books and so forth that have shown all of this historical data, uh, the, the signs in the heavens, the, the zodiacal signs that apply to the 12 sons of Jacob, just as he um, uh, referred to his sons when he passed their blessings to him and so forth back in Exodus and and so forth. So um, just a whole host of things that are just really you know good things for us to continue to studying about and to continue to share and share whatever new what we've learned. So anyhow, well, what do you think, Isaac? What do you think uh, based on what I read there and everything? Oh, I think Isaac had to drop out. 
So yeah, he probably had baby go. duty. Yep. Well, listen. Well, uh, have a good year. Have a new good Well, yeah. Well, let's just uh, pray a blessing here and seek a blessing. And Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity of fellowship. Thank you for the words of Russell that he said. You know, what can we do here on this night? Can we learn? Can we can we glean one little nugget here or there? And so, Lord, that's our will. Uh, and we believe that that's within your will is that we learn from you and learn uh, all that your word Amen. can share with us. We just thank you for that. And, Father, we just pray that you continue to guide us in the in the upcoming years, the months to come. We know this is not your year, but it's the year that the world has put us on this calendar. You told us they would seek to change times and places and things, and they have. And so, Father, we know that. And we just ask for your continued blessings with us, those that are yours. We thank you for it. Father, we would that we would be doing more as a nation and people to be abiding in your will and doing as we were commanded to love you by loving to keep your commandments. So, Father, we pray that you work in our lives to help us to keep those commandments and to abide in that love. And so, Father, I pray blessings upon all of those that are yours and those that are with children and pray for weather that will be able to be tolerated and handled by everybody and just pray for your continued bountiful economic blessings. And, Lord, we know it's your blessings, not what any individual president can bring us. We get those blessings by the grace of you, and the more we try to abide in your will, we know that the greater the chance of those blessings not only coming about, but actually sticking with us. So we thank you, Father. We ask these things and pray these things in the blessed holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for hearing and knowing our needs. Amen. Jesus, also take the men's families that are here tonight and put a protective covering over them, Lord. That's our prayer tonight. Please take care of us. We know not what we'll encounter in this sick world we live in. Father, I'd also like to say on behalf of the men here, we thank you for that man that was in the church that put the bullet in the head of the evil one that sought to kill many people. We thank you for that man. Yes, Father. And we know he was he was trying to do your will. Lord, we pray that one day in this land evildoers will be executed again. Amen. Thank yeah. you, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, Brother Russell, we'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Good night. Yeah. All right, bye now.